verses 19 to 31. And let's pray. Father, we're, we're about to read the words that you caused to be written. Uh, words that you have protected for 2,000 years. Well, longer than that. But Father, we just ask that you would open our hearts this morning to hear your words. Help us to understand what you are saying in your words. Lord, we pray that you would begin the work of change in our hearts using your word to, to break through where our hearts are hard. May we hear clearly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would please stand as I read John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. <laughs> and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. And see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus. 
Jesus said to them, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Mm -hmm. the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Mm -hmm. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Amen. That's right. It's appropriate to say amen. That is the word of God. I want to thank those of you who were able to join with us uh, Friday night for our Good Friday service. We had a great time here. I think uh, we'll get that uploaded to the website and would encourage you to um, give that a listen. I think it will serve you. Christ is risen. If he was a great teacher, it'd be appropriate for us to recognize that. Perhaps spend some time considering that. If he was a great teacher who was also a martyr, it'd be appropriate for us to mark a day in the calendar, make it a holiday, recognize him as a great teacher and a martyr. Maybe we could have a parade, hold a memorial service in his honor. But that's not Christianity. Christianity isn't that he was a great teacher, nor is it he was a great teacher who happened to be martyred. Christianity is Christ is risen from the grave. Meaning that he has separated himself from all the other great teachers and perhaps great teachers who've been martyred throughout history, he stands alone. And that's why thousands of years later, we still gather, we sing, we worship. With joy, we offer our songs to him. On February 27th, 1991, during the Desert, Desert Storm War, a woman by the name of Ruth Dillo received a phone call. It turned out it was the worst phone call of her life. Her son Clayton, private first class, had stepped on a landmine, she was informed, and was now dead. For the next three days, she grieved uncontrollably. No friends or family could comfort her in the midst of her grief. <clears throat> On the third day, she re- after receiving <clears throat> the news, the phone rang yet again. And on the other end of the phone, she couldn't believe her ears as she heard her son say, Mom, I'm alive. <clears throat> she did. She struggled with it. She didn't know what was happening And if it was, quite frankly, a a cruel joke, she was numb. Struggling to believe that she was actually hearing her son's voice. 
her son now was alive. Later, she would laugh about this. She would cry about this. She would just experience incredible joy because what seemed like this hopeless thing, unconsolable hurt and pain, turned out to be the greatest day of her life. Now, the comparison's obviously um, com completely different. Her son didn't die. And so there was a mistaken phone call initially. And while that's unthinkable, um, it's quite different than Jesus Christ died and he rose from the grave. But more to the point, that story of Ruth Dillow reminds me of somewhat of what it must have been like for those disciples that were in that room that Nate just read to us out of John 20. Can you imagine what it was like for those guys? Scripture tells us that they're, they're hiding out. They're in fear. And, and partially, I believe, they're in fear for their lives. They've been identified. They're, they're a part of that man who was wrongly crucified. Went before a kangaroo court, found to be guilty of nothing, and yet, nonetheless, crucified. Well, we belong to that guy. And so they're hiding. And John is painting this picture for us in his gospel, the gospel of John. He's given us this picture of what was it like the immediate days following Christ's death and then his resurrection. As his disciples are hiding, afraid for their safety, full of grief, unconsolable. The man that they had staked their hope on is gone. Disillusioned by the events of a few days ago, the pain is still fresh. You know, when John writes his gospel, well, when any of the biblical writers write, but since we're here in John, when he writes his gospel, he's not, he's not provide, providing these details for our information. He provides these details for our transformation. Knowing that Jesus has risen from the grave makes a difference. It's not just our information, it's for our transformation. And John is showing us here in this episode, which was just read to us, here's the difference that that knowledge makes on our lives. So we're going to tick through what does that difference, what does the difference in knowing that Jesus is alive, how does that, how does that change things? Number one, he is risen means that there is peace in the distress. All right, let's look back. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. And he'll repeat himself. He will say it again a couple verses down. 
So the disciples are in mourning. The disciples are in the midst of just unimaginable grief. For them, all has been lost. All has been lost. Not only have they lost, in their mind, the the Savior, the, the one who had come to deliver them, but they've also... You got, you got to remember like what the disciples' lives were leading up to this event. They've left everything to follow Jesus. Jesus asked of them, required of them to leave everything to follow Jesus. They've left their life, their, their, their source of income. They've left. There's individuals here, part of the disciples, who they've, relationships have been wrecked over this. Like if you're a zealot and now you're following Jesus... Your previous zealot friends aren't real excited about what you're doing now. If you're a tax collector and now you're following Jesus and we could tick through the list, they've not only lost this man who's been caring for them and this man that they had staked their hope to, but they've lost a great deal of their livelihood as well. They had become convinced that Jesus was the deliverer when Jesus was alive. They, they were slow to get it. Read through the Gospels. They, they didn't quite get it even when they were following him. They didn't quite understand who this man was. But they began to grow in their hopefulness. And they grew in this idea that Jesus is the deliverer. That perhaps Jesus is the second Moses. Moses came to deliver his people, right, from the slavery of Egypt. And they had been awaiting a savior. And now, oh, perhaps, maybe, I think, yes, this is that man. He's, he's the new Messiah. He's the new Moses. And he's going to deliver us, not from Egypt, but from Rome. They're under the tyranny of Rome, and the, this, this brought suffering and great pain and difficulty to their lives, and they were hopeful. They were hopeful for an overthrow of the government. Imagine all that they had left and all the hope they had staked into this man, and then they saw him crucified and laid in the grave. That's the setting when Jesus shows up in their, I'll say, living room and says to them, peace be with you. It's what they need to hear. Peace be with you. It's hard for us to imagine that scene. You know, these are not, this is not a story. These are real individuals in a real room with the real living son of God risen from the grave who's now there standing before them with real words, with a real voice saying to them in all of their distress, peace be with you. It's not the first time that they had heard those words or words similar to it. These same disciples found themselves at one point in a boat with Jesus. And Jesus was asleep, we're told. Jesus is asleep in the boat when a storm kicks up and to a storm of such an extent that the disciples began to fear for their own lives. So you can imagine that scene. While they're afraid for their own lives, Jesus 
is asleep on the boat. And so they go and they, they wake Jesus up and they wake him up with these words. Don't you care? Imagine. Imagine accusing Jesus of a lack of care. We probably all have done it at some point in our lives. Maybe even un, unaware. Don't you care? And Jesus got up. And he spoke to the wind and the waves. And what does he say? Peace, be still. And the wind and the waves, like we've preached before here at Trinity, you might be new, but creation always obeys God's voice. It always obeys God's voice. Creation gets it. It's humanity that struggles. When the Savior who created the wind and the waves says to the wind and the waves, be still, it goes still. And I think that's awesome. So they've heard these words before. He's spoken these words to creation before them. And now he's speaking these words to them. Peace, be still. And I would submit to you that the, the one thing perhaps they need most to be spoken by the Savior is peace be still. Perhaps one of the things that they're wrestling with most is all peace has gone. And when Jesus says, peace be still, we need to know that he's, it's more than, he's not just kind of calming the wind and the waves of life. He's not just saying, uh, suffering is gone now. Actually, he's not saying that at all. Do you know why Jesus then showed them his hands and his feet, his pierced hands and his feet? I would say, sure, I, I know why, because he wanted to convince them that it was Jesus, that he had risen from the grave. And, and, and while that's true, there's more to it than that. The marks on Jesus' pierced body shows what he has done or what he has accomplished. More than death and resurrection, it shows it's a visible display of what's transpired that Jesus, through his broken body, has brought them peace. Specifically, peace with God. That's what Jesus is speaking. That's what his pierced body accomplished. Not, not, not a calmness of life per se, but a, a, an ultimate peace. That it's peace with God. And so it calls our attention to the Old Testament. It calls our attention to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53. He speaks of this peace. He says, surely he, this is prophetic, speaking of Jesus who will come prior to, prior to Christ, the prophet Isaiah says these words, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
And all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. What's Isaiah saying? What's John saying? He's saying that, that through the life and death and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can have peace. Peace that goes beyond the circumstances of life. Something bigger is going on here. And the bigger thing that's going on here that happens through his pierced body is that he is reconciling us to God the Father. Because sin has separated us since the beginning, since the Garden of Eden. We are separated from God. Now through the body of Christ, he brings to us this reconciliation, this you are now made right before God. You're in right relationship with God. This is peace that comes through the broken body. You see, church, it's through the cross that you and I can have forgiveness peace with God. No greater words for the disciples to hear on that day. And I will submit to you, there are no greater words for any of us to hear today than peace be with you and all that that means. You see, it's possible for you to have a calm life. Now, I know all of us have, but first world problems, right? Given perspective, you and I live calm lives, some more than others, but it's possible to live a pretty calm life and yet not have peace, isn't it? And it's also possible to live a life that's not calm at all. It's, It's possible, did you see the news today? To be a believer in Sri Lanka and to be experiencing a measure of peace. How can that be? It's possible to have a calm life and yet not be experiencing peace, and it's possible to have a rocky, suffering life full of hurt and pain and yet be full of peace. How can that be? Philippians 4, Paul to the Philippians says it like this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. Why? The Lord is at hand. What does that mean? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. And what? And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, meaning I have peace and, I, and we don't get it. It goes beyond my understanding. I'm struggling here. And yet there's this measure of peace. Why? Because God has already taken care of your greatest problem in your life. It's not that you would have a better life, a better marriage, or more money to vacation in neater places. It's that you've been reconciled to the Father through his pierced hands and feet, through his death on the cross. He speaks these words to his disciples then and today. Peace be with you. Number two, he is risen. That fact 
we're saying is more, to be more than information, it's to be transformation. And this is what it means. He is risen means joy to the brokenhearted. Again, we're so familiar with the scene that we can, well, we can just kind of fly through it and not be aware of it. And I want, to, I want you to wrestle with it and imagine it. Verse 20 again, when he had said this, peace be with you, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, the Bible at different times can be the most understated book in the world. They were glad. You think so? <laughs> you think they were glad? Once they figured it, once they saw his hands and his feet, once they began to recall, oh, he told us this was going to take place before. We've been in all sorts of hurt and pain in our circumstance, and we're fearing for our lives. We're going to be identified as one of that man's disciples. They were brokenhearted, and in the midst of all the brokenness, John simply says, they were glad. <laughs> Yeah, they were glad. He's alive. Meaning, he is who he said he was. Meaning, he is God who came and took on human flesh. Meaning, when you repent and put your trust in him, your sins are forgiven. They were glad. They were glad not just because they had regained a son or regained their friend, like we heard about earlier, but because they have peace with God. They have ultimate forgiveness for sins. It's hard for us to imagine. These were real men hearing Christ's real voice and I try to put myself in the room and try to imagine when John simply states for the sake of room in his gospel, he tells us in a little bit that there would just be more than word than, than how does he put it? There are, uh, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe. Forgiveness. We, we were looking for a Messiah. We were looking for a deliverer. But their picture of what that deliverer was meant overthrow government. They didn't realize it meant overthrow sin and death. They were right. They were looking for a Messiah. This is the Messiah. They were wrong in that their vision of him was far too small. That he came to do infinitely more than they were even thinking or imagining. He had come not only to be the Messiah, not, not, not to be the overthrower of government, but to be the overthrower of governments. The overthrower of the government of our own hearts. The overthrower of our hearts who need forgiveness and our hearts who outside of that forgiveness, we are not at peace with God. The Bible is very clear. We are actually at enmity with God. We don't have peace. 
Christ comes. And John simply says, and they were glad. (laughs) So Paul to the Romans says it like this. Very different words, very similar thread. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we have been justified, meaning since we have been declared righteous, since you have the righteousness of Christ, because of what he's accomplished on the cross, we can repent of our sins and we can trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and you are given righteousness. It's, it's called imputed. You, you are given the righteousness of Christ. He not only takes our sin, but he gives us righteousness. That's what justification is and means. So when Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we have been declared righteous through our faith in Christ, what does he say? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice. Yeah, we're joining with the disciples. On that day, when John, matter of factly, just says, they were glad. Ah, that's, that's our testimony this morning as well. To, to the people of faith in Jesus Christ who have been justified by faith, who have been declared righteous by faith because he has imputed his righteousness into us. Not that we've deserved it. Not that we could ever earn that. It's been given, it's called grace, and his people today, well, we're glad. We join with those disciples in our joy. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How can that be? Well, because we have peace with God, we've been justified by faith. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That that whole five verses is saying, in the face of your suffering, there's joy. How can that be? Because it's not information, it's transformation. He's risen. Number three, he's risen provides the transformation in our lives. It gives purpose and mission. Verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I'm sending you. Huh? What? Like, have you ever seen that in that episode before? That's probably one of the verses that we just kind of roll past and not think much of. But here, in light of his resurrection, he's giving our lives its purpose and its mission. You see, church, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then life is without meaning. I want to say it again. Say it quietly. I want you to reflect on this. There'd be some in the room this morning that probably wants to push back on this. Questions are appropriate. But I say it again. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then life is without meaning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he puts it like this, that 
that if Christ hasn't risen from the grave, then we are the people who are to be most pitied. It's pitiful. What you're doing here this morning, if Christ didn't rise from the grave, is absolutely pitiful. What are you doing? Why are you here? And for those who are believers this morning, if he didn't rise from the grave, that's to be pitied. Why are you living your life for Jesus who didn't rise from the grave? Is he God? What would make you think that he's God if he hasn't risen from the grave? Why would you give of your life to a man who said he would rise from the grave and didn't do that? Why would you give in the offering? Why would you come and serve? Why would you teach behind these walls people are teaching children? Why, why would you teach the children? You're to be pitied, Paul is saying. There's no point and purpose, literally, to your entire existence if Christ has not risen from the grave. If there is no resurrection, then I would encourage you, live selfishly. Get everything you can get out of your short, brief life. Pursue whatever happiness fulfills you most. If there is no resurrection, don't care. Don't be hospitable towards others. Don't tell others about Jesus. But if there is a resurrection, then your life has purpose and it has meaning. And Jesus says it like this, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. There's purpose. There's mission. Because Christ has risen from the grave, our lives have purpose. Because Christ has risen from the grave, we can know, again, this is 1 Corinthians 15, that we will one day rise from the grave. That it's not, as we saw in the video, pursue this, 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 and this, and this, and then when it's all over, it just goes to the grave. Snuff it out, life is over, no purpose or meaning in any of that. Maybe at best, if you could seek some purpose, is just try to put some good efforts out there into the universe. And maybe even, on your best day, leave this place a little better than when you came to it. And pass that on to your children, your children's children. But if there is a resurrection of Jesus Christ, then your life and my life has meaning and purpose. And it's this, Christ himself sends you into the world. As the Father has sent me. That's pretty strong. Even so, I'm sending you. <laughs> wow. Jesus came. He was sent on mission with a purpose. He wasn't random. He didn't randomly walk the face of the earth. He didn't just kind of, ah, we'll see how it goes. No, he had a mission. And he accomplished his mission because he was sent by the Father and he obeys the Father by going to the cross, by dying on the cross for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the grave. And so your life, Christian, has purpose and meaning. As the Father has sent the Son, Christ now sends you. Number four, he, has, he is risen means we have new life. 
verse 22, says this. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. And I want to focus on the first half, well, on verse 22. When Christ rose, hear this, transformation, not information, transformation. When Christ rose, he offered them and us a new life. He offered us new creation. Out of the ruins, out of the mess, out of the the muck of our lives, he comes and he says, peace be with you. Followed by, they were glad, we are glad. Followed by, here's your mission, here's your purpose. And then he does something really weird. He breathes on them. What is, what is he doing? Why is he breathing on them? Has anybody ever breathed on you? Is that weird? Like, you know, you kind of take a step back a little bit. Try to be a little nonchalant. You know, we got our little, we have space here. Coffee breath. He's breathing on them. What's he doing? Why does John include that? What's the point of that? It's odd, isn't it? Jesus is demonstrating something. We could call it Jesus is living a parable. He's displaying to them very clearly what he desires to do for them and in them. So he breathes on them. Does it remind you of anything? Remind you of Adam. That's right. Let's read from Genesis 2. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So this is in the middle of all of God's creation. Adam hasn't been created yet. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. God breathed life into Adam, the first man. And now here we see Jesus and it should cause us to go back to Adam. It should cause us to think, wow, have I seen that before? Oh, God breathed life into Adam. Huh, what is the parable that Jesus is, is acting out here before them? What, what are we supposed to get from this? In the face of your fear, disciples, in the midst of all the despair, and all the hurt, and all the distress, Christ comes, he says, peace be with you, and then he breathes on them. Christ is showing them that with his resurrection, he breathes new life, new life into those who place their trust in him. They are a new creation. We are told in scripture that the old man has passed away and the new has come. 
You are a new creation. This is not simply provided for our information. This is for our transformation. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. He's living out this parable for us to see, oh, God, Jesus was there in creation. He remembers it. (laughs) He hasn't forgotten. He breathed life into Adam. And now he's breathing life, new life, into those who place their faith in him. Thank you. Thank you. God, we thank you. Hasn't he done that? Has he done that for you? Those of you who are Christians in the room. Has he done that? Like you think, you think about how he has done that, right? If you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, then he has breathed into you. He's breathed new life into you. You're a new creation. You've gone from darkness to light. You've gone from death to life. The old has passed away. New has come. The old flesh, meaning that, that old, those old desires of the flesh. Like these are the things, right? This is what Dan, you and I were talking about before the service. Just Nieves was asking, tell me about, you know, if I would have met Dan prior to Salvation. What does that look like? And so he was painting that picture. This is what it looks like. All that old man, all that old flesh, all those sinful desires, pursue them with a vengeance. The old life of sin dies away. It doesn't mean we're not sinners anymore. We are sinners. The old desires begin to move out. New desires begin to move in. Isn't that, huh, what? Like, I bet you there was probably a time when Dan was going, pulling out his Bible and going, what am I doing? <laughs> like, that would not have been the pursuit of the old man. Some of you are here in the building this morning and you're believers in Christ. At one point, you were a skeptic. Can't wait for Worldview Academy. Just got to read this week one of the lessons that will be brought by Lewis. Lewis is a good friend of mine who was an atheist, and he's just going to share a good portion of his story of how that came to be and how God rescued him and breathed new life into a skeptic and atheist. What changed? Well, he breathed into you. You were once evil. You were once opposing God. You were not, you were not a worshiper of God. You were a worshiper of self. You were, you were a pursuer of self. Some of you were indifferent. Some of you are indifferent. You don't care about God. And then when he breathes new life into you, why? What a change that is. Like some of you have probably sat in this church before and said, wow, he's boring. And perhaps now you go, wow, my God's amazing. What changed? He breathed life into you. The preacher didn't change. This book came alive to you. Your spirit woke up to the things of God. The sermons came alive. The songs suddenly took on meaning. You heard Amazing Grace all your life. I mean, that's the song of 
anyone and everyone. But now all of a sudden, the wretch realizes that it was through grace I'm saved. Praise be to God. And now that song has meaning. And there's joy that I didn't once have. And I have this peace. And same songs. Maybe the sermons are even more boring and longer. But what's changed is your heart being awakened to the Spirit of God. You're a new creation in Christ. And so to me, it's just beautiful. He breathes life into them. Lastly, he is risen means a skeptic now believes. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, I love, listen to the specifics. This is what Thomas says. Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said, Thomas, and listen to the list he ticks through. It's like he's parroting back to Thomas his words. Put your finger here. This is so kind of our Lord. He doesn't come accusing him. He doesn't ask him, why don't you believe? Weren't you one of my disciples? Weren't you listening to me? How kind of the Lord. Put your finger here. See my hands. And put on your hand and place it on my side. And do not disbelieve. What did he say, what did he say earlier? I will never believe. He says, believe. <laughs> believe, Thomas. I'm grateful for Thomas. Like, I'm so glad Thomas is in my Bible, right? Like if all the disciples were like high-fiving and saying, yeah, we knew it was going to happen. We're waiting. That's why we're in this room. We're waiting for you to show up. I love the reality of the Bible, how it paints people as people are, just like you and I, skeptic, wrestling, struggling. Thomas is struggling. And in that room, Jesus comes and he says, Thomas, look at me, touch me, believe. Unless I can, Thomas, you can, you can, go ahead. How about you? Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe, maybe you're identifying with Thomas. The worship team would come and join me. You know, if Jesus is a moral teacher, then let's have a holiday. If Jesus is a moral teacher, and maybe he's a great prophet, and maybe even he's a martyr, you might be here this morning and you go, you know what, I'm fine with that. He's a great teacher. He's a prophet. He was martyred. You're kind of indifferent towards that. You're fine with that. No problem with that. But risen, if he's risen, I call on you repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Risen means more than good moral teacher. Risen means more than great prophet. And risen means more than a martyr. Risen means this is God, your creator, your redeemer. 
Risen means he's the savior of our sins. That's how the disciples kind of had it right. He came to be the Messiah, just a bigger Messiah than they ever dreamed. If he's risen, he is God. He is savior of sins. And I pray this morning that he might breathe new life into your soul this morning as well. And that you would join with Thomas and a number of others who are in the room this morning who once were skeptics and now are saying, oh, he's risen. He's risen. I'm glad. I have peace with God. I have joy. My sins are forgiven. Believe, John says. The pyramids of Egypt are famous because they contained the mummified bodies of ancient Egyptian kings. Wow, the kings, mummified kings, brings fame. Westminster Abbey is in London is renowned because in it rest the bodies of English nobles, aristocrats, notables. Muhammad's tomb is noted for the stone coffin and the bones it contains. The Taj Mahal. Amanda, you've been to the Taj Mahal, and Casey's been to the. Anybody else been to the Taj Mahal? Two? I haven't either. It was built as a memorial to a wife of one of India's shahs. Arlington Cemetery. It's revered. We honor that place in Washington, D.C. It's the resting place of so many outstanding Americans. The garden tomb of Jesus is famous. Not because of who's in it, but because no one is in it. The tomb is empty. Our Savior rose from the grave. So let's stand together. Amen. Let there be gladness and joy. You have peace and let's worship our God.